Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. As we look at this text, I want us to consider something. I want you to consider decisions that you make. We all know that some decisions have relatively small consequences if they're bad ones. And other decisions have really costly consequences if we make bad ones. Let me give you an example. Uh, When you're trying to decide what restaurant you should eat at, that decision can only be as bad as what? Your... The service isn't good. Your food was cold. Worst case scenario, you get food poisoning. But that decision is relatively inconsequential uh, as, as far as what can go wrong with it. Yet, there are bigger decisions that we make in life, like... What sort of business decision should I make in this situation? Those types of decisions can affect whether your business has success or whether your business fails. Or how about this? What college should I go to? This is a relatively big decision, right? It's going to affect where you're going to spend the next four years, what sort of education you're going to get. It's on a different level of decision-making than choosing what restaurant you go to or what type of toothpaste you use. We recognize the difference. And then there's even a little bit greater decisions like who should I marry? Most people would say, well, this is a really big decision in your life. It's going to affect a lot of your life. But still, there are greater decisions to be made. 
Paul's jaw is on the floor. He's amazed. And he is shocked at the decisions the, these churches in southern Galatia are making. Because this decision that they're making, or at least they're being tempted to make, will affect their eternity. It's the greatest decision anyone can make. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Jurassic Park. Uh, there's been several of them now. But that feeling when a person, for whatever reason, needs to walk out of safety and into the Tyrannosaurus Rex cage, or in the newer one, this hyperbreed that's way more dangerous than the Tyrannosaurus Rex, is like, What's it called? A raptor and a tyrannosaurus together? Yeah. Creates this horrible <laughs> dinosaur. But when a person walks into that cage and the music starts to change and there's these leaves and rustling a little bit and a person's looking around kind of going like this, and you know it's coming, so you're like bracing yourself. Paul is looking at these people with shock, essentially saying, where are you walking into? What in the world are you thinking? Leaving the gospel of grace. You see, in that movie, all the dinosaur can do is tear you apart and kill you. But the decision these church members, these followers of Christ are making or are tending towards is such a dangerous situation that it's going to affect all of their eternity. You see, we're afraid of that dinosaur because it can tear us apart. But what about the God who just merely spoke and the universe was created? And He never sleeps. And He knows everything. He knows all of our rebellion. And He's just. And He's going to bring about justice. And there's one safe place to go. And they are wandering out into the cage of I'll face God without Christ. Without protection. You know, you watch these videos of uh, in Africa of these antelope that are running and there's a lion after them. There's this one video where this lion is chasing this antelope right along the edge of this little river and the lion swipes at it and the antelope goes into the water and then the lion 
jumps down into the water and grabs the antelope with his teeth and just launches it up onto the land. And one of the illustrations we get in our Bible of our Christ is the lion of the tribe of, Ju- of Judah that's going to come and tread the winepress of the wrath of God. He's a lion and he's a lamb. To those who re- receive his sacrifice as a lamb, he will be your protection. And so this, for us to understand this text, we need to understand what Paul understands about God and about sin and about Christ. Um, So look at verse 6 with me. The point of this sermon is simply, do not walk away from Jesus, your only hope. Don't walk away from your only hope. And the first thing I want to point out is your proneness and my proneness to wander away from God. To wander into that cage without protection. Look at what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. One of the things he's surprised about, remember, Paul just got back from his first missionary journey where he proclaimed Christ to them and they heard for the first time how they can be assured that their sins are forgiven. And they can, and they for the first time see God's plan as to how he's going to reconcile with sinners. They've seen it. They've loved it. A, a certain group has treasured Christ and Paul leaves them, goes back to Antioch, and right away he's amazed how quickly these ones who were trusting in the grace of God, the protection of Christ, are now wandering away. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him. The first point is this. You will be quick to wander away from God. And so will I. The Bible tells us this. I mean, it can be moments. You can be feasting on Christ and moments later, walking right away from Him. Putting your hope somewhere else. All throughout the history of man, we've seen this. In the Garden of Eden, we saw it as Adam and Eve walk away from God for a snake. A lying snake that, I mean, up to this point, God's proven Himself to Adam and Eve to be totally trustworthy. A snake they'd never met, who's never done anything for them. They wander right over to Him and walk away from their God. How about the Israelites? 
400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God comes in and supernaturally, miraculously, after 10 plagues and and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea, He comes in, He gets His people out. I mean, this... There is no Savior like this God. He takes them into the wilderness. And God in His kindness in Moses is going to tell them what He's like. He's going to give them His law which reflects who He is. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets up on the mountain. Here's what we read. Exodus 32.7 And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? God just brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They gather gold and they make a cow and they look at it and they say the cow the cow delivered us out of Egypt and what's highlighted Moses look how quickly look how quickly they've wandered away go down there we have a proneness to wander away from God what would it be like to spend three years with Jesus I mean, it's like, this isn't like a weekend guy's trip. This is like, I'm leaving my job and I'm walking on roads with him and following him. This is like a three-year guy's trip with the Son of God, with Jesus Christ. You get to see the miracles. You get to hear His teaching. You get to see His compassion. And it all culminates in a Passover meal where he turns the meal upside down and he says, for now on, you're going to eat bread and it's going to represent my body and my flesh given for you. And you're going to drink wine. It's going to represent my blood which is shed for you. And then in Matthew 26.41, or Matthew 26.30, it says this, and when they had sung a hymn, This is a culmination of a beautiful day, isn't it? And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night. No. Impossible. Impossible. There is no way. I mean, you could say... You know, after three weeks, you're going to fall away or something. You are not saying tonight. You know, listen to their response. He says, you will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He says, surely he's talking about them. Some of them may fall away, but there's no way I'm falling away. He can conceptualize someone else being so weak. 
He can't conceptualize himself being so prone to wander from such a great God. Jesus said to him, truly I say, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. This is out, it's not even 12 hours. Just hours. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So would I. You know? So would you. Can you imagine walking away from the living Christ you spent three years with in the next couple hours when He's already warned you about it and said you're going to? No way. You know you're not going to. And yet... Matthew 26, 41, a few verses later, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does He say? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's telling them what they ought to be doing. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. They've had some of the sweetest fellowship on this night. And then we read this in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting in the courtyard after they've come and arrested Jesus. And I love this. And a servant girl. A scary servant girl came up and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. This is the Peter who's even if I go to my death, all the way to my death, I'm not going to deny you. A little servant girl comes up and says, you followed him. And he denies Christ. And then, I think God's providence is amazing and even humorous as He tries to show us how weak we are. And when He went outside the entrance, another servant girl them saw him and she said to the bystanders this man was with Jesus of Nazareth and he denied it with an oath I do not know the man after a little while came bystanders came up and said to Peter certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And we read it. And every time I read it, I feel the shock. But then the Holy Spirit says, aren't you just like this, Sam? So easily prone to wander away from the God you love. Does Peter love Jesus? Peter loves Jesus. But in the weakness of his flesh, that quickly, he wanders away. And you know the story. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When did he come to his senses? This is interesting. 
Why, when the rooster crows, does he begin to repent and weep? See, he remembers the divinity of Christ. This is prophetic. Jesus said this would happen. It happened. God is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. In that short a time, the fearful circumstances of the world get him so scared that he's looking to protect himself and then he's reminded of the Christ who just prophesies and it comes to be. And this is how it is for us. This is what the fight of faith looks like. To live our life by faith and trust in the, in the Son of God. And, and notice how it says, deserted. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a, a different gospel. You see how personal it is? He's speaking to these Galatian Christians. And he, he's saying, you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the gospel of grace. You're going to leave Him so quickly? You're going to walk away Him? For who? Who, who do you think you're going to go to? You're going to leave Him you're going to leave that protection? What, what's plan B if you leave Him? And yet, I find myself prone to wander away from Him. To be filled somewhere else. My heart can be so quick to wander away from this God. And, you know, one of the things we fail, one of the reasons we fall is we forget that our faith is in a person who is God. It's, he's in Jesus. You see, if you break rules, that doesn't really bring about repentance. So much. Oh, I broke a rule. All right, I'll keep some rules then. But when you desert Him, when you're walking away, is not walking away from rules, but you're walking away from a, your Savior, the one who loves you like no other, the one who saved you out of slavery, then we begin to weep like Peter weeps as we realize. Him. It's Him. You know, Peter looks over his shoulder, the rooster crows, and there, a couple hundred yards away, Jesus looks over his shoulder and they make eye contact. And he weeps. You see, his faith is not in some cold doctrine, but in a person who did work and was going to do work on his behalf that very night to save his soul. And I know I share this text often, but it's such a good reminder. Here's how Jeremiah speaks of the foolishness of walking away from this God. Jeremiah 2.11 
Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken for me, forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, world, look at this. Isn't it shocking? They leave me the fountain of living water that can satisfy them. And they prefer broken wells that are dry as a bone. It's shocking. And so Paul is being like a prophet as he's being, in a sense, shocked and amazed that they're so quickly deserting him who called them according or in the grace of Christ. Second, know you are called into being. You see, when Paul says you were called in the grace of Christ, it's not, it doesn't mean invitation. For Paul, when he says call, he means an effectual call. For example, when Jesus told Lazarus, get up, it wasn't an invitation to get up. It was an effectual call which gave him life and caused the resurrection so he could get up. That's the point he's, he's getting at. Who called you in the grace of Christ. He didn't call you because he saw you were good. He called you in the grace of Christ. He, he's showing them, look how helpless you are. You were saved by His calling of you. His kindness to resurrect you. Let me just give you a few examples of effectual calling. This is an important uh, theological uh, term to understand because of, of, of what it entails. 1 Corinthians 1.23 I'll, I'll just read several verses here and, and hope you catch what Paul means when he says this. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So he preaches that God became man and died, was killed by people as a criminal, and that to the Jews is a stumbling block. No way is God going to die that sort of death, nor would He ever die and folly to the Gentiles. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. God takes on flesh. Flesh to the Greeks was weak. A deity would never take on flesh. But to those who are called, that's an effectual calling, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. See, when I preach every week, I'm preaching the gospel, and I know there's believers here and there's non-believers here. There's saved people here and those who have yet to be birthed out by Christ. And so I preach, and I'm waiting for God in His grace 
to send the effectual call where all of a sudden a person says, this Christ that was boring, this Christ that didn't mean anything to me, all of a sudden is the wisdom of God. This is what my life is about now. I recognize the wisdom of God in the Gospel. And then he goes on to say, so to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brothers. You see? Those, those of you who are saved, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world. And now get this, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in His presence. He's saying God saved you guys by a type of call that won't let you boast at all. Because it's a resurrection call that I chose to give you. In Romans 8.30, Paul says this, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. That means found not guilty. So everyone who God calls in this way is found not guilty. So there's the general call in the New Testament where you preach the Gospel, give the invitation to everyone. I do that all the time. But I'm waiting for God to bring the effectual call that will call them, that will bring about a resurrection when the Gospel is preached. Uh, Romans 4.17, speaking of Abraham, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. <laughs> so Abraham is given a promise. That you're gonna, you, your children are going to be as many as the sand of the seashore. He's going to call into existence things that do not exist. It's effectual call. It's a creative call of God. That's what he's getting at in our text. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. One more. Romans 11.29 for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This type of calling is a gracious calling. And Paul is saying to these people who at least declared that they were believers, he's saying, are you going to walk away from the Christ who started new life in you? Those who are truly saved can never truly walk away, but how do you know? Everyone's, there's a bunch of people confessing. Those who walk away from the gospel prove to have never been given new birth. So, second, know 
you are being called by Christ. You have been called by Christ. You're not a Christian because you were smarter. You're a Christian because of the grace of God sending His effectual call so that all of a sudden the Christ that meant nothing to you means everything. Know there is one Gospel. Point three. Look at what he says. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. There's only one true good news, but they're turning to some other sort of good news. Remember, here's what they're doing. In Acts 15.1, this describes what these Judaizers were doing. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, there's teachers that come into this newly found church, these newly found churches. And they say, yeah, we love Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. But make sure you get circumcised because if you don't get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, you won't be saved. Their argument probably went back to Genesis 17 and said only those who are circumcised can be a part of the people of God. Look, we have a text. And they don't recognize that that circumcision is pointing towards to a circumcision of the heart not made with hands, Colossians 2. So here's what they're doing. They're tempting them to turn to this. I'm going to give you two mathematical equations with theological terms. So I know some of you are mathematic, and you'll enjoy this and it will help you. Others might not. Here's one type of religion. Grace in Jesus Christ plus your works becoming more godly equals salvation. Grace plus works equals salvation. Jesus plus circumcision and following the law equal being part of the people of God. This is what the false teachers were teaching. Sounds, sounds pretty good. Jesus did His part. Now you better start becoming like Jesus if you want God to justify you. So that if you want to do theological terms, grace plus works equals justification. Justification is the legal declaration from God that you are not guilty. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that justification comes through Christ's grace plus actually starting to become righteous, not fully in this life, but after you die, you go to purgatory and you become more righteous and to the point where you are totally righteous, then God will say, now you can get in. But the Gospel Paul teaches is this. Grace plus justification. So grace, forgiveness for sins from God to you, 
And God's saying, you're not guilty based off my grace equals works. See, the Bible teaches a type of morality, a type of godliness. But it never teaches a type of godliness that earns your salvation one ounce. Rather, it teaches God in His grace paid for your sins on the cross. He's declared you not guilty because He's imputed Jesus' perfect life to your account. What happens in the grace of God when you trust in Jesus, Jesus lived a sinless life. In that life, if I had a folder that had all the sins I ever did, and Jesus had the folder that had everything He ever did, His is all good, perfectly followed the law. Mine is all sin, all this sin. And when I trust in Christ, Jesus grabs my folder and says, I'll take the punishment for it. And then He takes His perfect life and He says, here's a gift. It's called the righteousness of God. And when I give this to you, my Father's going to look at you and He's going to say, justified, not guilty. And you want to know what that equals? A life that begins to change. Works. That's the formula. This whole letter is about a person is saved by grace and not by works. But then a person who is saved by grace, what does he do? He has the Holy Spirit in him. He begins to walk with the Spirit. This is the end of Galatians. So know that there's only one Gospel. Fourth, know the temptation to glorify yourself. Look at what it says. But you are turning to a different Gospel. But there are some who trouble you or just hang on a sec. I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But And notice how it says, but want to distort. There's some in the church that are wanting to distort the Gospel of Christ. And we have to say, well, why would they want to distort the Gospel of Christ? Why would Adam and Eve want to eat of the tree when God told them not to? Because Satan was saying, God's holding out on you. If you eat of this tree, you're going to become smarter than God. He's taking all the glory for himself right now. You go get the glory. And I think the reason why they wanted to trouble them and distort the gospel is because these false teachers wanted to build themselves up. Why do I think that? If you look at chapter 6, verse 12 of Galatians, here's, here's, here's what Paul says. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep, or do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So these people that say you need to be circumcised, you know why they want you to be circumcised? Because when you're circumcised, then they say, see, now you're good like me. Here's how it might happen in modern day. And you've done this, and I've done this. So we can learn from the mistakes of false teachers. Let's say someone decides, I'm going to get rid of my TV and cable because it's evil. Sinful. I want to be more spiritual. That person never keeps that quiet usually, do they? Yeah, we got rid of cable last week. Yeah, just not enough time with the family. What are you trying to do? You're actually trying to get a convert here. You're trying to bring conviction. You're trying to to evangelize, maybe. You, you could do this with the right heart. I'm not saying this is always the case. But our temptation, our sinful, glory-seeking hearts tend to tell everyone else what we're doing so that we make a little evangelist out of them. And then if they go tell someone else, well, where did this thing start? Well, who's doing Well, at least they're getting as spiritual as I am now. This is what these guys are doing. They're trying to say, be circumcised, not because they can keep the law, but because they want glory to come to themselves. And Paul says, far be it for me to boast in anything except the grace of God and the cross of Christ. <laughs> Paul's saying, the only thing I'm asking you to do is to repent as a sinner and receive the grace because that's all you are. That's all you can do. He can't add something to bring glory to himself. So, know the temptation for you to do what these people were doing. In a sense, wanting to add to the gospel, it sounds so spiritual. Well, you're saying the laws of God are bad? You're saying you're not supposed to follow the Ten Commandments? You can just imagine. It sounds so spiritual. But if you add anything to the grace of God, for the reason of being accepted by God, it's a different gospel, and that gospel damns to hell. We see this. It's kind of shocking what he says. Look, look at... Uh, well, I also want to point out there, <clears throat> notice that it says they wanted to avoid persecution in, in Galatians 6. If they were just going to preach the gospel of grace, the Jews, they wouldn't be popular in town. So they choose a popular, popular self-righteous thing. Be circumcised like us. And that's going to help us understand what Paul says next or, or at the end of this text. But uh, Number five, know the exclusivity of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Now, here's the deal. These people were likely better looking than Paul and probably better speakers than Paul and, and probably more convincing if you're just going to look at charisma. But Paul says, even if an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches something different than what was delivered to you first. 
to hell with them. Anathema means to be damned. And Paul says, if I contradict the gospel I first preached to you, to hell with me. This is the offense of the gospel. This is what the world hates. The exclusivity of Christ. There is one gospel and there is one way to be saved. And anyone who teaches another way, even if they're really nice and they're really pretty and they have a really big church and they're really charismatic and people say, oh, he's like the nicest person I've ever seen. Well, that's Paul's point here. Even if an angel comes, there's one gospel. If you leave that, nothing. There's only one safety. There's only one place we can find refuge. Find, have our sins forgiven. There's only one way we can be made a friend of God and a part of His family and it's through Christ. And lastly, know the approval of God. Here, here's Paul's argument. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Remember, Paul just left them. He, he, he was just on his missionary journey. What happened? He got stoned to the point they thought he was dead. And, he, and here's what he's saying. Do you think I'm preaching this message <laughs> to find approval of man? Do you remember what happened to me? They chased me from town to town, then they stoned me, and then I courageously went back and taught the same thing. These other guys, they're doing it to boast in themselves. I'm a servant of Christ, is what he says. So, in conclusion, I want to leave you with a Martin Luther quote. Martin Luther says this. Last week, the sermon was, grace and peace to you. And how shocking that is. This is a letter to sinners. Grace and peace to you in Christ. He says, grace releaseth sin and peace maketh the conscience quiet. The two fiends of torment are sin and conscience. But Christ had vanquished these two monsters and trodden them underfoot in this world and the world to come through Christ. So you can walk out into the world with your sins still there and your conscience totally condemning you. Or you can stick with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is He saves you by grace. And you can live with a clear conscience in the sure expectation of salvation in Christ. My prayer is that you stick with the true gospel. Even though the temptation of your heart and my heart is to seek the approval of God by the things we do, not what's been done for us. I'll walk away from the gospel of grace as fast as as soon as I see myself sin, rather than repenting and praising God for the grace I have, a true brokenness, but praising God for grace, I begin to start to I gotta get I gotta get this better. I gotta do this better. And then when I get a little better, then I'm gonna come ask for forgiveness. That's a different gospel. 
God receives you. When you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Don't wander away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if you stay there, your life will begin to change. Father, thank you for Paul's willingness to eventually die that this gospel might be secured and preserved for us. Lord, I thank you for reformers who had a dark time in the church history when your gospel began to be perverted into the traditions of man. That there were those willing to put their life on the line to say that salvation is by grace alone. Father, I pray that you help us stick with the grace of God to not look to our own works. Father, I pray that you give us the good news to share with the lost people around us, to those who think they're going to be saved because they're good people. God, give us, rather than scoff at that, let us remember that's who we are often. Lord, give us a heart to share the good news of the gospel with them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.